It actually takes uh, five chapters in the Gospel of John. And so all this is happening on one night. That's the context. Keep that in mind. He's still in the upper room. He's still with the disciples minus Judas who has left. And he says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. And we pray this morning that your word would do its work in our lives. That it would convict, comfort, encourage, teach, draw us closer to yourself. May it be effective for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jean and Jan were the typical Loudoun County couple. Jean worked at the airport, the largest employer in Loudoun County. And rumors had been circulating now for months that uh, where Gene had worked now for the last 20 years was going to cut back 25%. The airline's in one of their regular slumps. And uh, due to the slowdown that was happening in the economy, which is due to the slowdown in the housing market. And if all this is true, then layoffs at all levels, including Gene's, are bound to happen. Now, the news had been leaked out that cuts were coming at the end of the month. And Gene and Jan are overwhelmed by the uncertainty and bombarded with questions about the future. If I lose my job, will we be able to make it? How can we keep up with the house payments? What are we going to do about health insurance? What kind of job can I get at 56 years old? Will Jan have to go back to work? And as this was going on and they were getting closer and closer to the day of the layoffs, Jean became more quiet and withdrawn as the end of the month approached. Jan's waking up in the middle of the night and she's not able to get back to sleep. And they're both worried and anxious. They're also both Christians. They attend church regularly. They consider themselves spiritually mature. Of course, we all consider ourselves spiritually mature. It's the other people that we worry about. They don't think Christians should worry. They've prayed about it. But it has hit so hard, they're starting to wonder if their beliefs really matter. And they're still worried, and they're still anxious. And Jean and Jan are a lot like us. 
We worry. We get anxious. And we're not alone. We're surrounded by worried and anxious people. So is Jesus. That becomes clear to us in our text right here at the beginning of John 14. This morning we're looking at John chapter 14. We see the disciples have very much the same sort of problem that Jean and Jan had and that we have as well. They're facing hard times. And Jesus wasn't going to be there. It's the night of the Last Supper. The disciples are in the upper room. They've already had their feet washed. They've already finished the meal and communion. Jesus has predicted two betrayals and announced he was leaving. And they're confused men. They left all they had for Jesus. Homes, friends, occupations, everything. And he just told them that he'd be leaving them very soon and they couldn't come with him. They're uncertain of what Jesus means. They feel threatened by his coming departure. They're under great emotional stress and they're incredibly anxious. So look at verse 1. We see Jesus begins to comfort them by telling them they need to trust two things. The first thing they need to trust is the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. That's the first blank there in your outline. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare, prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, this passage contains one of the most well-known verses in the New Testament. You know, I've tried to think of the number of times that I've quoted John 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, in Christ. And when Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, he used a very picturesque word. The idea is, don't let your hearts shudder. In the preceding chapter, John used the same word to describe Jesus' emotion as Judas went astray. John 13, 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so the same word that was used, and Jesus identifies with what they're going through, and he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. It's a strong word. He's saying specifically to the disciples, especially in light of the cross, which is imminent, it may look like your world is falling in. All is lost. Darkness is going to engulf you. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, it's almost impossible to read this narrative without these verses coming out and focusing themselves upon us. There's a long-standing debate about the meaning of the word the ESV has translated, I think correctly, rooms. Part of the problem is the word only occurs twice in the New Testament, here and in verse 23, where it's translated home. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Same word. Literally, the word is 
Monai. It means dwelling place or abiding place or staying place. It was translated by Jerome in the, in the first, uh, the old Latin Bible, by the Latin word mansiones, which meant lodging places, but was translated into the King James by the closest English word, mansions. But mansions is not the right idea. Far more simple and straightforward, an interpretation is the one that takes the Lord to be speaking of heaven when he speaks of his father's house and of his second coming at the end of the age to take his disciples to be with him in heaven. In that case, the word must mean rooms because we're talking about places within the father's house. And of course, the point is not the nature of the rooms themselves as if we're to visualize long hallways with doors on each side. But the fact is that there is a place for the disciples in heaven. Jesus will see to it. And they, though separated for a time, will be with him at last and forever. And the many rooms indicates there's enough room in heaven for all the redeemed, for all who trust in Christ. But I want us to see these verses in the context of what Jesus is saying here in the upper room and to find a central theme emerging here, and that is a way of comfort for the disciples of Jesus Christ is to know and realize that our Father in heaven cares for us. That's the theme of this. Don't get caught up in the rooms versus mansions. This is not what it's about. It's about God the Father caring for us. But I find it's in a very um, arresting image that Jesus uses to point the attention of his disciples forward to the second coming, to heaven, to the consummation of all things. He's trying to put their minds at rest by telling them what's in store for them. And he refers to heaven as my father's house. And then he said there were places or rooms there for all who trust in and follow him. And everyone knows what he meant. At the deepest level of recognition, we understand and appreciate this image of home. Home means everything to us. Even those of us who have bad memories of growing up in our father's house have a dream of home, a longing for a home, know instinctively what the Lord meant when he spoke of his father's house and our finding a place in it. Now, it has been a long time since I lived in the home that I grew up in. But my memories of that home are still sharp and clear and warm. I can still see myself there. I can picture in my mind living there in the years of my childhood. In fact, I've been gone from that place um, 35 years now. But I can still remember the address. 10 Manitou Ave, Oakland, New Jersey, 07436. I can't remember the address of most every other place I've lived. But for some odd reason, I've never forgotten that one. And I can remember very clearly the first home that Joanne and I shared. It was a small one-bedroom apartment. And now we've lived in a house that will be the home that our children will remember. And the memories that we have of our children and all their memories of childhood and youth will be associated with that home. Why does a memory stick like that? Because of the power that home has over our hearts, the precious 
uh, associations that swirl around the houses where we live with our parents, where we grew up, where we ourselves grow old. And I imagine that you probably have similar memories. What do all these memories have in common? But that the love of home, a family, of belonging, of relationships are so precious and so deep that we can't even think about our lives apart from them. That's home to us. It's not just a building on a street. It's where we lived. It's family. It's where we grew up. And someday you'll go back and it'll be, that, that's my father's house. And here our Savior is telling us he has gone to prepare a place in our father's house so that we can be there with him forever at home. We all know why the Lord chose the image of home, of a father's house, where someday we'd make our home. The interest isn't here as it is sometimes in the Bible, to describe the grandeur of that house, but to evoke the atmosphere of a home where we will all belong, where we will all live with our father and elder brother in the kind of love that's found only at home. Elsewhere in the Bible, heaven is depicted in uh, a lot of different ways. But here in the upper room, the Lord uses this powerful emotional image common to all of human life. Heaven is home. Our Father's house. Our Savior's home. And forever and forever it will be our home. Salvation at last is coming home. I mean, think of the parable of the prodigal son. Somebody has described the three stages of that parable in terms of home. At first the prodigal was sick of home, and then he was homesick, and then finally he was at home. Heaven, I mean, that's what Christianity is all about, right? I mean, without heaven, it's to no purpose. The covenant, the incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is all about how God brings us to heaven. It's all part of redemption. It ends up in heaven. Uh, last Sunday, uh, uh, Rich taught in Sunday school about the order of salvation, and the last item is glorification. You know, when we finally uh, are done, we're in heaven. And heaven stands at the end of uh, it all as to that which everything points from which everything gets its meaning. It is an indescribably rich vision we're given in the Bible of the final consummation and fulfillment of life that awaits everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Now, there's lots of stuff about heaven in the Bible. There's a pure vision, the drinking up of our souls in the glory of God, a heavenly city with golden streets and a clear flowing river. There's a great country with believers ruling over cities. There's the wedding feast with all of us sitting down at a great banquet. But here in John 14, heaven is simply home. A home we'll never have to leave. A home that we will never grow out of. A home that will be everything we know a home should be. Everything and just so much more than the best of our homes have ever been. And you really need to enter into the Lord's image and ponder it and imagine what it will be like sitting down with your father in the dining room 
to eat that food, enjoy that conversation, and to know it will only get more wonderful as time goes on, and never the shadow of death over that home. It's an amazing image. And then Jesus tells him what he's doing in verse 3. He says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, when Jesus says he's going to prepare a place for us, he's not saying uh, that, um, like, Habitat for Humanity, he's going up there and build us a house. What he is saying is that it is the going itself by way of the cross and the resurrection that prepares the place for us. He is going to die and rise again so that everything is done that needs to be done in order for his followers, for believers, to enjoy being in the presence of God with him in heaven forever. And Jesus wants his disciples to trust in his presence. He said later in Matthew 28, one of the very last things he said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He was never going to leave them, never forsake them. And the best antidote to the worry and anxiety that jumps into our lives for all of us is the knowledge that God is with us. We have to trust in the presence of God. Of God. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and they're afraid, they're troubled, they're distressed. He's saying to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus' remedy for serious heart problems. This is Jesus, the spiritual cardiologist. Todd considers himself an amateur cardiologist. Something wrong with your heart? Check with Todd. He'll tell you exactly what your cardiologist is going to tell you. But this is Jesus as the spiritual cardiologist pointing to heart trouble and pointing out how that heart trouble can be alleviated. So the first thing he tells them is not to be anxious or upset, but instead to believe. We've heard that before. John is the gospel of belief. He writes this gospel in order that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. And then the second thing that Jesus tells them they need to trust is the person of Christ. Verses 5 through 7, the person of Christ. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. I want us to look at the question of Thomas in verse 5 and see how Jesus responds. Jesus didn't just come out with this uh, way life truth statement out of the blue. He's responding to Thomas. He had just said at the end of verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. And so the question comes in verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. You know, Thomas is often portrayed, and probably rightly so, as a pessimist. You know, someone who is by temperament gloomy, you know, always sees the glass as half empty. You know, and there's there's probably some validity to that. I don't think completely, but there's some. And he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
It's a lack of faith that brings them to ask these questions. It's all right, Jesus, for you to say that you're going to the Father, but we don't know the way. We don't know the way to the Father. And so here Jesus tells his disciples, then and now, an amazing thing. Jesus answers Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth of the Father. I am the life the Father bestows. And he is true. Jesus is true in the sense uh, that the Old Testament, and uh, this is particularly true in the Gospel of John. John uses this word true in contrast with the Old Testament, and particularly with Moses, in which the meaning we find in, in Moses often is of a shadow, a fleeting shadow, a picture of the salvation that Jesus is going to bring. But now, Jesus is the true, the real, the substantial, the fulfillment of all that has been pictured in the Old Testament. It's all now come to fruition in Jesus Christ. And so we see that he is the life, because the life of the Father is constantly present in the ministry and words of Jesus. He's enjoyed the Father's life from all eternity. He is the only way to the Father. He is the way to God. He is the truth about God. He is the life of God. Thomas Akempis, a great writer, has a very classic book. Everybody should read it at least once in their life called The Imitation of Christ. And in it, he meditates on this verse. He writes, Follow thou me, I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the straightest way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. And of course, you can catch the exclusivity of what Jesus is saying here. There is no escaping it. He is the only way to the Father. There is no other mediator. There is no other way into the presence of the Father to know the Father, to have life from the Father. He's the only way, not Mohammed, not the way of Buddhism, not the way of Hinduism, not the way of all of the great sophisticated religions of the world. John 14.6 says it's only through Jesus. And that message makes us countercultural and politically incorrect. And it causes many to be frustrated and even angry with us. And it's not that we don't love people within those religions. It's not that we don't love those who disagree with the claims that Jesus makes, but that we love them in truth. So the next time someone uh, tells you how mean you are to say such intolerable things, to be so exclusive and so narrow-minded, ask them what they would think if it were true. Would we then be so mean and narrow-minded, or would we be the most loving people on the planet since we're willing to put our own fears, our own experiences of rejection aside to tell them the truth? You have to understand, Jesus didn't, uh, the, the difference between what they want us to say and what we actually say is that G- Jesus didn't point to a way. He said he was the way. He didn't point to a truth. He said he was the truth. He didn't just point to a life, a good life, a great life. He said he was the life. 
And that's the way Jesus talks. We know that from this gospel. Jesus didn't just offer you some bread. He said, I am the bread of life. He didn't point you to a light. He said, I am the light of the world. He didn't point you to a door. He said, I am the door. He didn't just say there's going to be a resurrection with eternal life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And we'll see as we uh, move on into John 15 that he's not going to point you to a a vine. He's going to say, I am the true vine. And unlike other world religions that have their proponents of that religion and teaching, Jesus identifies himself as the very core and center of the faith. He is all that there is to look for. And in our fallen world, we can gain relief for troubled hearts from the fact that Jesus is going to be personally with us. He's going to take us to be with him personally. Not just the place, but the person. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be ours. He says, I am coming again. And that's in the present tense. In the New Testament, there are 318 allusions are direct references to the fact the Lord is going to return to take us to be with him personally. We are going to see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So in answer to Thomas's question, how can I come to know uh, the Father? You know, what is the way? I don't know the way. How do I get there? The most important question that you can ask, Jesus points to himself and says, it's only through me, Thomas. It's only through me. Unless you come through the Son, by faith in the Son, you cannot come to know the Father. Now, don't miss the courage that this saying demands in the shadow of the cross. We are hours. We're within 24 hours of the cross. In a little while, Jesus will be killed by people who vigorously oppose the way of God, but he can say, I am the way. In the face of approaching evil, people whose lies will bring about his death, and Jesus says, I am the truth. And although his body is soon going to be placed in a tomb, he says, I am the life. The way of Jesus is the cross. The way of the disciples is Jesus. And the reason why we don't have to be troubled is because Jesus has been troubled for us. It's so simple and yet most of us miss it. The reason why we don't have to be troubled is because he has walked into the trouble He's taken that trouble on his own heart. He's taken that trouble on his own soul so that we need not be troubled. And he says that the way out of trouble, whether it's the trouble of water and mud that's ruined your home and destroyed your possessions, or that trouble that's on your heart and on your soul, Jesus says the way out of that trouble is to come to know a Father in heaven who cares for you who cares enough to send Jesus to die for you, to go to the cross for you, to walk into the fires of trouble for you. Where I am, there you may be also, he says. 
because in my Father's house are many rooms. Where I am, you may be also. And surely it's very interesting that the Lord, in comforting his disciples, does nothing more than simply offer this image of the Father's house and of there being places there for the disciples. He doesn't elaborate it all. He doesn't explain it. He says he's going to prepare a place for us, but he never tells us what that means. What does he do to prepare a place for us in the Father's house? What does that mean? The Lord doesn't explain it. He's content simply to leave us with this single image of heaven as home. And a solemn promise that he'll see to it that we make it there. And he doesn't have to elaborate that image because it's so powerful by itself. But he does emphasize his promise. He underscores this promise three times in rapid succession. One, trusting God in and me. Surely you can count on us, he's saying, to tell you the truth. There will be a place for you in my Father's house. Two, if that were not the case, I would tell you, you men have lived with me and walked with me for several years. Surely you know that if this happy and consoling uh, prospect wasn't real, I'd tell you. I, of all men, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of Man, would not lie to you about something as important and sacred as this. And then three, surely if I'm leaving you precisely in order to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, then you can count on me returning to take you there. My work will not fail. If my purpose is to ensure that you will be with me forever in our home in heaven, then of course it will be so. And how those words must have come back to console and encourage and steal the nerves of the apostles later. The Christ who rose from the dead, the Christ whom they'd seen with their own eyes ascend to heaven, the Christ concerning whom the angel had said he would return just as he left this world. That Christ is clearly not going to fail in accomplishing his will. And he said that he was leaving the world, and then he would said he would return to the world with no other object in view but that he should have his disciples with him forever in his father's house. Now, had you been on the British coast in 1845, I don't think many of you were there. Maybe Jerry, I'm not sure. You would have seen two ships boarded by 138 of England's uh, finest sailors setting sail for the Arctic. And their task was to chart the Northwest Passage around the Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. The captain, Sir John Franklin, a very famous sailor, hoped this effort would be the turning point in Arctic exploration. And history shows that it was. Not because of its success, but because of its failure. The ships never returned. Every crew member perished. And those who followed in the uh, expedition's path to the pole learned a very important lesson. Prepare for the journey. Prepare for the journey. Because apparently Sir John Franklin didn't. And although the voyage was projected to last two or three years, he only carried a 12-day supply of coal for the auxiliary steam engines. And what he lacked in fuel, he made up for in entertainment. 
Each ship carried a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ, china place settings for officers and men, cut glass wine goblets, and sterling silver flatware. Because you need all that stuff in the Arctic. You know, you read that, and it's like a Caribbean cruiser, Arctic exploration. I mean, judging from the supplies, you'd think it's the Caribbean. The sailors carried no special clothing to protect them against the cold, only the uniforms of Her Majesty's fleet, noble and respectful, but thin and inadequate. The silver knives, forks, and spoons were as ornate as those found in the dining room of the Royal Navy Officers' Clubs. They were heavy at the handles and intricately designed. Years later, these place settings would be found near a clump of frozen cannibalized bodies. The inevitable had occurred. The two ships had sailed ill-prepared into the frigid waters, ice-coated the deck, ice-coated the riggings, the sea froze around the rudder, and trapped the ship. And the sailors set out to search for help, wearing their uniforms and carrying their belongings. And Inuit Indians reported seeing a group dragging a wooden boat across the ice. And for the next 20 years, remains of this expedition were found all over the frozen sea. The boat was later discovered containing the bodies of 35 men. Other Indians discovered a tent on the ice and in it, 30 more bodies. Franklin himself died on the boat. Search parties would later find a piece of the backgammon board that Lady Jane Franklin had given her husband as a farewell gift. Apparently backgammon is a very popular sport in the Arctic. And many miles from the vessel, the skeleton of a frozen officer was discovered, still wearing trousers and a jacket of fine blue cloth, edged with silk braid, with sleeves slashed and bearing five buttons each. Over his uniform, the dead man had worn a blue greatcoat with a black silk neckerchief. And you have to think, it's just really odd, it's strange how men could embark on such a journey so ill-prepared, more equipped for afternoon tea than for the open sea. And yet it's stranger still how we do the same. Does Franklin and his men remind you at all of us? I mean, we often, maybe for you sometimes, act as if, you know, the Christian life is a retirement cruise. We have little fuel but lots of entertainment. We're more concerned with looking good than with being prepared. We give more thought to table settings than to surviving the journey. We give little thought to the destination, but we make sure there's plenty of silver to go around. And when the freeze comes, we step out into the ice with forks, games, lightweight clothing, and pass our final days walking against the wind, blaming God for getting us into this mess. But God is not to blame. If we sail unprepared, it's in spite of, not because of, God. He left detailed instructions about this voyage. His word, our map, his Holy Spirit, our compass. He outlined the route. He described the landmarks we should seek. He even told us what to pack for the trip. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5. And most remarkably, he's gone before us, and he goes with us. He's both a pioneer and a fellow traveler. And when we grow weary, all we need to do is listen to his voice. He's got special promises to keep us 
on the journey. And here's one of the best promises of all of those. In my Father's house are many rooms. It's a great phrase. It's a great promise. A house implies rest, safety, warmth, a table, a bed, a place to be at home. But this isn't just any house. It's our Father's house. Most of us know what it's like to be in a house that's not our own. Perhaps you've spent some time in a dorm room or an army barracks or you've slept in your share of hotels or, or even in a few hostels. I mean, they have beds, they have tables, they may have food, they may be warm, but they are a far cry from being your father's house. Your father's house is where your father is. Perhaps you can remember the voice of your father coming home from work, filling the hallways, sounding through the room. Some of you can. For many, the memory is fond. Others of you don't have that memory, but you will. Psalm 27.10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Your father has a place for you, a place with many rooms, an ample place, a place with space for you. There's a special room for you. You will be welcome. We don't always feel welcome here on earth. We wonder if there's a place here for us. People can make us feel unwanted. Tragedy leaves us feeling like intruders, strangers in a land not our own. We don't always feel welcome here. And we shouldn't. This is not our home. To feel unwelcome is no tragedy. In fact, it's healthy. We are not home here. The language we speak, it's not ours. This body we wear, it isn't us. The world we live in, this isn't home. Our home, it's not finished yet. But when it is, our elder brother will come and take us home. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The second sentence is curious. Why did Jesus say, if it were not so, would I have told you? Why did he say that? Did he see doubt in the heart of the apostles? Did he read confusion on their face? I don't know what he saw in their eyes, but I have a pretty good idea of what he sees in ours. He sees what the airline attendant sees when she gives her pre-flight briefing. He sees what the physician often sees when he tells his patients to stop smoking. He sees what ministers see when they tell their Sunday congregation that each of them could die today. Yeah, sure, but probably not. We don't say the words, but we think them. Sure, this plane could crash, but then again, it probably won't. So rather than listen, I'll read my magazine. And sure, I could die of cancer, but then again, maybe I won't. So rather than stop smoking today, I'll wait for tomorrow. Sure, I could die today, but then again, why don't we listen? Why don't we listen? Because we assume we have time. It's a very dangerous assumption. Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. What fear strikes a man when the end is near and he's not prepared? 
What fear must have struck the crew of Sir John Franklin when they became stuck in the ice? What anxiety overcame them to search for food and to find silver, to dig in the closets for coats and find thin uniforms, to explore the ships for picks and axes and find backgammon games and novels? Don't you know they would have swapped it all in a heartbeat for what they needed to get home safely? By the way, what supplies are you taking? Are you carrying your share of silver and games? Don't be fooled. They may matter here, but they don't matter at all when you reach your father's house. What matters is if you are known by the father, because it's not what you have. It's who you know. Be prepared for this journey, because you don't want to be left out in the cold. You need to pray. Do that, and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, Help us to realize that this world is not our home, that we're strangers in a strange land, sojourners on a journey, but that we're just going home to be with the Father, going to our Father's house. Father, help us to understand what that means what the implications of that are for our life. Help us understand that we are on a journey. We need to prepare for this journey. And Father, we will go on with all the toys and all the games if left to ourselves. So I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds to help us to think that we're going home that we're going to our Father's house. Focus our minds on that. In Jesus' name, amen.